Blog Talk Radio. Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 4, Side 2. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347 324 Remond met O'Connell in July 1840, while both were in London attending the annual meeting of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. At one of the sessions, Remond followed O'Connell on the program and opened his speech with a tribute to him. A month later, the two reformers dined together. In his remaining months abroad, particularly those spent in Ireland, Remond spoke of O'Connell in unrestrained praise. When he returned to America in December 1841, he brought with him a great Irish address signed by Daniel O'Connell and 60,000 other Irishmen urging their countrymen in America to treat the Negroes as friends and to make common cause with the abolitionists. In his speaking tours back home, Remond exhibited the address, which in most halls extended from the rostrum to the front door. Hundreds would examine the document, including some Irish. But the American sons of Aaron were not abolition-minded. Indeed, as much as they admired O'Connell, they bitterly resented his proddings as to the Negro. Irish abolitionists, O'Connell, Richard D. Webb, and James Houghton, among others, were totally unable to transfer their attitudes to their transplanted countrymen. The fear of labor competition from Negroes was the dominant reason for the coolness of the Irish-American toward the abolitionist movement. There were other reasons, but none could be so tersely expressed as that of William C. Nell. The opposition of Irishmen in America to the colored man is not so much a Hibernianism as an Americanism. For the twenty years following Remond's visit abroad, a veritable host of Negro reformers made their way across the Atlantic. These included former slaves turned clergymen, like James W. C. Pennington, Henry Highland Garnett, Samuel Ringgold Ward, Jermaine W. Loguen, and Josiah Henson, the last named soon destined for fame as the original Uncle Tom. Former slave laymen who journeyed abroad bore names equally notable in reform circles, such as Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, William and Ellen Craft, and Henry Box Brown. To these must be added a complement of free-born Negroes, among them J. McCune Smith, Robert Douglass Jr., William G. Allen, William H. Day, Sarah P. Remond, Martin R. Delaney, and clergymen Alexander Crummel and William L. Douglass. Robert Purvis was one of the few Negro abolitionist leaders who did not come to England during the peak decade of the 1850s. He never repeated his visit of 1834, a circumstance much regretted by Sarah Pugh, one-time president of the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society and herself a sojourner in the British Isles in 1853. 
The presence of the noble and gentlemanly Purvis would do a great good, wrote Miss Pugh in March 1853, because he was allied to the oppressed race and because of his knowing all things and everybody connected with the cause from the beginning. But Purvis remained in America, even though later that year he and his wife seriously considered moving to England for good as a result of the refusal of the Philadelphia chicken fanciers to receive into their exhibition any poultry from Purvis. He attributed his denial to their color prejudice, their coolness toward him having been made all the stronger by having won the first prize at the three preceding annual exhibits. Of the Negro Americans journeying to the British Isles, some were bent on pursuing academic training study or professional study, as in the cases of Smith, Crummel, and Robert Douglas. Brother of Sarah Douglas, the last named had come to London with a letter of introduction from the well-known portraitist Thomas Sully. Some made the trip, like Raymond, as delegates to a conference. Pennington journeyed to London in 1843 as a representative of the Connecticut Anti-Slavery Society to the World Anti-Slavery Society. William Wells Brown sailed from Boston in July 1849 as an officially accredited delegate to the Paris Peace Congress. Samuel Ringgold Ward came to England in June 1853 as an agent for the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada, his main mission to solicit funds for the assistance of needy fugitives. As if to spread their thin ranks as widely as possible, these visiting Negroes did not travel in company with one another as a rule. Occasionally, however, their paths crossed in attending official or specially called meetings. For example, the annual meeting of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society held in London in 1851 was attended by Cromwell, Garnet, Hanson, and Pennington, each of whom spoke. Three months later, on August 1st, at the Hall of Commerce in the same city, the American Negro performers held a public meeting for the dual purpose of celebrating West India emancipation and condemning American slavery. With William Wells Brown in the chair, the large audience included two literary luminaries, Thomas B. Macaulay and the newly appointed poet laureate Alfred Tennyson. The length of stay of the visiting blacks varied, ranging from six months to five years, both J. McCune Smith and William Wells Brown remaining for the latter span. A few came with the intention not to return, like William G. Allen and the Crafts. Those who originally planned to stay for a short time found reasons for extending their sojourn. J. McCune Smith spent his entire span in one place, but the others, including the university-based Crummel, did considerable moving around. In this respect, none could quite match William Wells Brown, whose wide-ranging travels took him, as he reported, to nearly every town in the kingdom. If there was one Englishman above all others to whom the visiting blacks were indebted, it was George Thompson. No stranger to Negro Americans, Thompson had first come to the United States in 1834 as an agent of the British and Foreign Society for the Universal Abolition of Negro Slavery and the Slave Trade. A close friend of Garrison, Thompson shared his attitude toward Negroes, addressing them as brethren and sisters. Unpopular with Boston's non-reformist element, Thompson had constantly faced mob violence. I cannot describe the emotions of my soul in view of the wicked, murderous, and fiend-like disposition exhibited toward you in this land of Bibles and Christians, 
Susan Paul had written in a letter expressing gratitude for his labors. The Negroes who came to England were happy to meet such a long-time champion. Winner of a seat in Parliament in 1847, Thompson did all that he could for the visitors, furnishing them with letters of introduction, arranging their itineraries, traveling with them to meetings, and introducing them to audiences. Thompson's graciousness was characteristic of the general reaction to the Negroes. Abolitionists as a class were more highly esteemed in England than in America. Certainly the mission-bent blacks who crisscrossed the British Isles were most cordially received. Small in number and transients for the most part, they posed no threat to the laboring man or to the purity of the national bloodstream. Hence they received that heartiest of welcomes that comes from a love of virtue combined with an absence of apprehension. A few examples may be in order. James W.C. Pennington was given a tea party at Surrey in June 1843, attended by 500 guests. A month later, he preached twice at the Queen Street Chapel in Leeds, a local reporter characterizing everything about him as impressive. Frederick Douglass had a similar experience upon his arrival in the British Isles in 1845. Wherever he goes, wrote visiting William Lloyd Garrison to his wife, he is the lion of the occasion. For twenty months, Douglas was hailed and fated, whether in England, Ireland, or Scotland, whether in large cities or quiet crossroads. Mayors presided over assemblies gathered to hear him. He dined with the great abolitionist Thomas Clarkson a month before his death, and he spent an evening with the economist statesman John Bright and his sister. At a packed public farewell in his honor in London on March 30, 1847, he could truthfully point out that, although I speak of it myself, I have steadily increased the amount of attention bestowed upon this question by the British people. William Wells Brown arrived in London in late September 1849, after a ten-day stay in France where he spoke admirably at the World Peace Conference and attended a reception given by the French Foreign Minister, Alexis de Tocqueville. In England, Brown was overwhelmed by public meetings. At a January soiree in Newcastle, he was given a purse of twenty sovereigns as a token of regard for his character and admiration of his zeal in advancing the cause of the slave. At Bristol, in April 1850, four hundred guests, sat down to tea in his honor. In December, Brown was joined at Liverpool by William and Ellen Craft, and for six months the three former fugitives journeyed through the Midland counties, northern England and Scotland. The trio repeated its triumphs of a year earlier in New England. All who see and talk with them cannot but feel a deep thrill of indignation at a system that would rob such persons of their humanity, wrote the Liverpool Mercury. Hundreds were turned away at a meeting arranged for the three visitors by the Glasgow Female Anti-Slavery Society. The crafts were received with rapturous applause, and Brown delighted the crowd with his observation that the United States welcomed the refugees from the banks of the Danube and Tiber, whereas here in Glasgow, 3,000 persons are assembled to welcome refugees from the banks of the Mississippi. At Bristol, the three reformers gave a new impetus to the abolitionist spirit. Arriving in England within months of Brown was James W.C. Pennington, there for a repeat visit. Hired by the Glasgow Female Anti-Slavery Society, 
he toured the length and breadth of Scotland, his tearful tales exciting sympathy and sorrow. In 1850, he attended the World Peace Conference at Frankfurt, returning to England with Henry Highland Garnet. For three years, the latter sounded his voice of vast compass in public places throughout the British Isles. Garnet so impressed the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland that they sent him to Jamaica as pastor of the Stirling Presbyterian Missionary Church. As Garnet sailed westward to his new charge, two other Negro abolitionists debarked to enliven the British scene. The most conspicuous of these was Samuel Ringgold Ward, whose circle of black chin whiskers could be observed only at close quarters. Huge in stature, witty and vivacious, Ward was an immediate favorite wherever he went. Although called upon to speak on behalf of a variety of reform causes and on the same platform with distinguished public figures, he never failed to acquit himself with honor. The Earl of Shaftesbury, who presided at his first two meetings, became his patron, and the Chelmsford Quaker, John Candler, offered him fifty acres in Jamaica. The other abolitionist notable who came to England in 1853 was the youthful, light-skinned William G. Allen. Formerly a teacher at Central College, Allen had married one of his students, Mary King. When their engagement became known, Allen had been visited by a group of townspeople armed with tar and feathers, and his fiancée had been moved to a neighboring county by her protesting parents. But the determined couple married on March 30th and sailed for Liverpool nine days later. Once in England, Allen quickly published an account of his experiences, The American Prejudice Against Color, an authentic narrative showing how easily the nation got into an uproar, London, 1853. Priced at one shilling and written in Allen's typically forceful style, the book sold well. With his wife, Allen toured the reformist circuit relating their story. Subsequently, he added three addresses to his repertoire, one on the history and prospects of the African race, another on the present condition of the American Negro, and a third on his probable destiny. In Dublin, for two years, he supplemented his lecture income by giving lessons in elocution. Befriended by such prominent abolitionists as Joseph Sturge and George Thompson, Allen solidified his support by his ability and integrity. In a letter to Garrison, he contrasted his reception in the land of John Bull with the patronizing attitude Negroes met with in America, even among abolitionists. As if to bear him out, his British admirers purchased control of the Caledonia Training School at Islington and installed him as master, the first instance in this country of an educational establishment being under the direction of a man of color. Allen's success in promoting the cause in England was fully matched by that of Sarah P. Raymond of Salem, Massachusetts, sister of Charles Lennox Raymond. Well and favorably known in Garrisonian circles, Miss Raymond had in 1856 been employed as a visiting lecturer by the American Anti-Slavery Society. Her moderate success on the platform in her native country was overshadowed by her triumphs abroad in 1859 and 1860. The somewhat supercilious Maria W. Chapman, who had spent six years in Europe, wrote to Sarah on September 4, 1859, asking whether she would like to have special letters of introduction from me. Miss Raymond had no such need. 
She bore a beguiling air of refinement, a genteel pattern of manners so esteemed as an ideal of womanhood in Queen Victoria's England. She carried herself with an air of high seriousness. Her speech was dulcet-toned and quiet, and her fluent vocabulary was free of unladylike turns of phrase. Unlike many of her colleagues, she avoided the sentimental, the heart-rending tales of Tom and Topsy. But of Miss Ramon's effectiveness there could be no doubt. In August 1859, she gave three lectures in Bristol, her first appearance having been advertised by printed handbills. At one of the crowded meetings, she was asked to express an opinion on the religious revival in America. She replied that it was not genuine since it did not include the abolition of slavery. The Bristol and Clifton Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society, sponsors of her visit, expressed their deepest appreciation for her visit and their mournful sympathy for the slave. At its December 1859 meeting, the Leeds Young Men's Anti-Slavery Society hired Miss Raymond as an agent and arranged a tight schedule. For three months, her life was a whirl of appearances at town halls, chapels, and school auditoriums that invariably were crowded to excess. When she appeared at Warrenton in March, her address was signed by the mayor, the parish rector, the member of parliament for the borough, and by 3,522 inhabitants, no previous address in Warrenton having ever been more numerously autographed. At Dublin in March, at a meeting arranged by the Dublin Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society, Miss Raymond's audience included university clergymen and professors who were held as spellbound as those of lesser learning. At a meeting in Edinburgh in October, Miss Raymond attracted an audience of over 2,000, with hundreds turned away. After speaking an hour and a half, she resumed her seat amidst enthusiastic cheering, which was prolonged for several minutes. Summing up the value of her services, the Leeds Young Men's Society reported that the thousands who heard her would never forget the experience. In point of time, Martin R. Delaney was the last of the better-known black abolitionists to pay an antebellum visit to the British Isles. Timing things so as to attend the International Statistical Conference at London in mid-July 1860, Delaney arrived fresh from a safari into equatorial Africa. At the opening session of the conference, the chairman, Lord Brougham, called attention to his presence. Amid great applause, Delaney bowed, and for the five days of the conference he was a center of attraction. His subsequent stay of seven months was capped by his attendance as a special guest at the Congress of the National Association for the Promotion of Social Science, held at Glasgow, and his appearance before the Royal Geographic Society in response to an invitation to give a report on his African exploration. From the time of Nathaniel Paul's visit in 1832 to that of Delaney nearly 30 years later, Negro Americans had worked to strengthen the current of anti-slavery sentiment in Great Britain. Their audiences had been large and sympathetic, and their influence had been correspondingly great. After listening for a quarter of a century to their unsparing condemnation of human bondage, the British public found it hard to conceive of a single good argument in its support. On the eve of his departure from the British Isles, William Wells Brown could tell a Manchester audience that he returned to America knowing that he could truthfully assure Negroes and abolitionists 
that something is being done here for their cause. This deepened British hostility to slavery took many forms, such as supporting American abolitionist weeklies, particularly the one published by Frederick Douglass, sending money for the Underground Railroad, and publishing and circulating books on Negroes of ability, such as Wilson Armistead's A Tribute for the Negro, 1848, and H.G. Adams's God's Image in Ebony, 1854. But the most significant manifestation of British hostility to slavery came with the outbreak of the Civil War, when the English masses and middle class became strongly northern in their sympathies, regarding the Confederacy as slavery's strongest bastion in the Western world. Thus did British abolitionist sentiment, nurtured by visiting blacks from across the Atlantic, influence international diplomacy and the outcome of the Civil War. Negro abolitionists, who could not do their bit by journeying to the British Isles, might express their sentiments toward the great English reformers Wilberforce and Clarkson. Upon the death of the former in late July 1833, Negroes showed their sorrowful esteem. The members of the Phoenix Society wore badges of mourning for a month, and another New York group sent a letter of condolence to the family. In Newark, one of the self-improvement groups held a memorial service, and at the Baptist Meeting House in Boston, John T. Hilton delivered a commemorative oration. Negroes in Philadelphia likewise assembled in solemn tribute to Wilberforce. His birthday, August 24th, was annually observed by the Young Men's Wilberforce Debating Society, and one of the two antebellum colleges founded for Negroes bore his name. Wilberforce's co-worker, Thomas Clarkson, was likewise honored in colored circles by having literary and self-improvement societies named after him. Upon his death in 1846, Negroes in New York held a commemorative service, with Alexander Crummel delivering a long and carefully prepared eulogy. Charles L. Reason recited an original poem, Freedom, of comparable industry, 42 stanzas, of which the following lines are suggestive. Well hast thou fought, great pioneer, the snows of age upon thy head were freedom's wreaths, by far more dear than finest sculpture or the dead. Perhaps the best way to pay tribute to a fallen abolitionist was to stretch out one's hand to the slave. This could be done most directly through the Underground Railroad. Chapter 7 The Black Underground a fugitive slave, a living gospel of freedom, bound in black. Lydia Maria Child, 1846 On a day in early August, 1850, William Still of Philadelphia was approached by a man who gave his name as Peter Freeman and said that he was looking for his long-lost mother and father, Levin and Sidney, former slaves like himself. William Still was an underground railroad operator and hence familiar with dramatic incidents. But as Peter unfolded his story, Still stood almost transfixed. For it happened that Levin and Sidney were his own parents, and therefore the man talking to him was an older brother he had never seen before. Such human interest stories about former slaves who journeyed northward looking for relatives or in pursuit of freedom, or both, made effective propaganda for the abolitionist cause. Fugitive slaves on the wing tended to arouse sympathy and to stir the public conscience. 
Slavery was weakened far less by the economic loss of the absconding blacks than by the anti-slavery feeling they evoked by their flight and the attempts to reclaim them. Sympathy for the runaway slave was created and sustained by the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. Heavily weighted in favor of the master, this measure offended the popular sense of fair play. Without first obtaining a warrant, a master had only to seize his slave, bring him before any judge, and prove to the court's satisfaction that the person in custody was guilty as charged. The judge would then issue what was in essence a certificate of repossession. The alleged slave was permitted no trial by jury and given no opportunity to present witnesses to give testimony on his behalf. The abolitionists attacked the measure on the dual grounds that it was unconstitutional and that it legalized kidnapping. The latter contention was the more readily provable, particularly in the instance in which Richard Allen was claimed as a fugitive, much to the subsequent discomfiture of the claimant. The law was one-sided, but even had it been more fairly drafted, there would still have remained a great reservoir of sympathy for those who made the dash for freedom. A blend of the desperate and the heroic, their actions could hardly fail to win the admiration even of the great mass of people who did not care for the abolitionists and to whom the free Negro was someone to be tolerated rather than welcomed. Hence, the work of assisting runaways was in popular favor in the North, many whites being drawn into the work. Possibly the best known of these was the Quaker, Levi Coffin, whose 35-year record of slaves assisted ran to well over 2,000. Formerly from North Carolina, Coffin's success as a storekeeper in Newport, Indiana, and then in Cincinnati, afforded him the means for Underground Railroad activities. Two other abolitionists with long and almost as notable careers in helping fugitives were Thomas Garrett, whose Wilmington home was perhaps the best-known station in the East, and Canadian-born Alexander M. Ross, who took time from his career as a physician to recruit escape-minded slaves in Richmond, Nashville, Selma, and New Orleans. Any balanced analysis of Underground Railroad operations must include its Negro workers. In Ohio, for example, black people were particularly active. Abolitionist leader James G. Burney noted in February 1837 that slaves were escaping in great numbers to Canada by way of Ohio. And, he added, such matters are almost uniformly managed by the colored people. I know nothing of them generally till they are passed. The fugitive slaves who made their way through Sandusky were aided almost wholly by the town's 100 Negroes, led by a barbershop owner, Grant Ritchie. The state numbered not fewer than 100 Negro Underground Railroad workers. In Missouri, the loose network included a cluster of all Negro associations in St. Louis, which sped the fugitive to Chicago and points north. The great authority on the Underground Railroad, Wilbur H. Siebert, points out that the list of towns and cities in which Negroes were co-workers with whites in the movement was a long one. Moreover, he adds, many Negroes in states that bordered the slave regions found numerous ways to help the fugitives without much risk to themselves. Although Siebert is as objective as one could wish in his assessment of the Negroes' role in the movement, he unwittingly does not do it full justice. In his monumental directory of the names of underground railroad operators, embracing some 3,200 entries, Siebert designates 143 names as Negroes. But enlisting the following, he did not identify them as colored. James J.G. Bias, 
Frederick Douglass, George T. Downing, Robert Morris, Robert Purvis, Charles B. Ray, Stephen Smith, and William Whipper. Similarly, enlisting the membership of the Vigilance Committee of Boston still omits the Negro identity of William C. Nell and John T. Hilton. And in the roster of the General Vigilance Committee of Philadelphia, he does not indicate that Charles H. Bustill, Robert Purvis, C.L. Reason, William Still, Josiah C. Wares, and Jacob C. White were colored men. Of the variety of ways to assist fugitives, one in particular was suited to the Negro operator, that which entailed going into the South and making contact with those who were escape-blinded. The slave was more likely to place his trust initially in a black face. Moreover, some Negro conductors were former slaves who were familiar with the territory in which they operated. Some of these secret returnees were willing to run this special risk in order to rescue their wives and children. The most renowned of these black conductors was Harriet Tubman, who, like Nat Turner, was given to dreams and to prayers. Herself an escapee from Dorchester County, Maryland, in 1849, she made some 15 excursions into slave territory and brought back more than 200 fugitives. Short and spare, she hardly looked like a person with a price on her head. But she was skillful in avoiding detection, her coolness in a tight spot matching her courage. To her abolitionist associates, she became something of a legend, Thomas Wentworth Higginson calling her the greatest heroine of the age. A less noted and less lucky conductor was Leonard A. Grimes, a free Negro. Grimes became a hackman in Washington, D.C., eventually owning a number of horses and carriages, all as available for rescuing slaves as for conveying paying passengers. In one of his ventures in Virginia, his native state, he was seized after spiriting a slave family away in a hack. Grimes spent two years in the state prison at Richmond. He then went to Boston and became the pastor of the Twelfth Baptist Church. But, as in Washington, he neglected no opportunity to assist a runaway. Most of the conductors whose names are lodged in record were based in the free states and hence were engaged in speeding the slave on his way rather than leading him out of the South. These middlemen included George L. Burroughs of Cairo, Illinois, whose job as a sleeping car porter between Cairo and Chicago gave him an unusual opportunity for smuggling slaves. The most enterprising conductor in Salem, Ohio, was George W.C. Lucas, whose false-bottomed wagon conveyed fugitives to Cleveland, Sandusky, and Toledo. At Elmira, New York, former slave John W. Jones secreted slaves in baggage cars bound for Canada. For some black conductors, the water was the freedom route. Slaves were carried across the Ohio on skiffs from Kentucky to Indiana. Negro crewmen might bring slaves aboard as stowaways on vessels leaving southern ports and bound for the north. Elizabeth Barnes, who worked for a ship captain at Portsmouth, Virginia, hid slaves on vessels sailing for Boston and New Bedford. New Yorkers Edward Smith and Isaac Gansey of the schooner Robert Center were charged by the Virginia governor Thomas W. Gilmer with having abducted slave Isaac and $3,000 was offered for their delivery to the jailer at Norfolk. Shipping slaves from one northern port to another was far more common than the intersectional traffic, not to say less hazardous. James Ditcher piloted slaves along the Ohio from Portsmouth to Proctorville. 
Fugitive slaves were a common sight on the canal boat running from Cleveland to Marietta and owned by Negro abolitionist John Malvin. It is to be noted that many runaways never left the Cotton Kingdom, taking refuge either in the towns or the swamplands. Other slaves preferred Mexico as their destination. A letter from a free, colored Floridian in an abolitionist journal in October 1831 urged slaves to turn toward Mexico because of its convenient location, its mild climate, its generous land policy, and its freedom from color prejudice. But to the great majority of footloose slaves, the region above the Ohio River had one irresistible attraction that Mexico lacked. A substantial black population like themselves in language and outlook, and one whose feeling of simpatico needed no proving. A prominent feature of the Negro underground was the providing of overnight accommodations for the absconding slave. A white host might well be an object of suspicion to a newly-fledged fugitive. Upon reaching Philadelphia, where they revealed their true identities, William and Ellen Craft were placed with Barclay Ivins, a non-Negro, much to Ellen's alarm. "'I have no confidence whatever in white people,' she told William." They are only trying to get us back into slavery. Levi Coffin noted that the fugitives who passed through Newport, Indiana, generally stopped among the colored people, although the latter were not always as skillful in concealing them as they might have been. But carelessness could hardly be charged to Chaplain Harris of Jefferson County and his associate Elijah Anderson, despite the fact that their cabins were well-known stopping places for fugitives. Coming to Cincinnati in 1847, Levi Coffin found that there, too, most of the fugitives who landed in the city soon vanished into the colored quarter. Some of those who were taken to the Negro section wound up at a place most unlikely to be suspected of harboring fugitives, the well-appointed Dumas House, famous for its ornate saloon where one might find the biggest colored faro game in the country. At Ross, Ohio, the Reverend William H. Mitchell gave overnight housing to some 1,300 fugitives over a span of 12 years. Mitchell's lodging house activities ceased in 1855 when the American Baptist Free Mission Society engaged his services as a missionary to the former slaves in Toronto. Runaway slaves reaching Detroit could find asylum at the residence of George de Baptiste, who had worn out his welcome in Madison, Indiana, because of his Underground Railroad activities. A slave coming to Chicago might be lodged with the well-to-do tailor, John Jones. At Philadelphia, the physician-clergyman, James J.G. Bias, gave his bed freely to slaves directed to his house by the white abolitionist Charles T. Torrey. Not stopping with his bed, Bias also gave to his overnight guests a quick medical checkup. Just outside Philadelphia, the Byberry residence of Robert Purvis, a well-known station on the underground, had a special room reached only by a trap door. Another wealthy black abolitionist, William Whipper of Columbia, a port of entry for fugitives from Maryland and Virginia, resided at the end of the bridge leading into the town. He put up as many as 17 slaves in one night, the next day sending them west by boat to Pittsburgh or by rail to Philadelphia in the false end of a boxcar he owned. In one instance, Whipper alerted Jacob C. White at Philadelphia that the fugitive he was dispatching was in a perilous situation, having seen his master that very day. 
At Westchester, Abraham D. Shad, fairly well off, but not in a class with Whipper or Purvis, entertained and forwarded black transients. In New York City, the home of Charles B. Ray was a haven for journeying fugitives, fourteen of them walking up the front steps one summer morning. But Ray was not the only black New Yorker to be so blessed. One hundred and fifty in a single year have lodged under my roof, wrote Henry Highland Garnet, and I have never asked or received a penny for what I gave them, but divided with them my last crust. Colored abolitionist leaders in upstate New York knew that runaways would be directed to their doors. Germain W. Loguen at Syracuse fitted an apartment in his house for these unannounced visitors. Those who came to Rochester made their way to the office of Frederick Douglass on Buffalo Street, early morning arrivals sitting on the steps until opening time. In Albany, the home of Stephen Myers was an overnight sanctuary for black drop-ins on the last leg of their northward journey. The Buffalo home of William Wells Brown was a station on the Underground Railroad, Brown himself conducting 69 to Canada over a period of seven months in 1842. In the Northeast, the best-known rendezvous for runaways was the home of Lewis Hayden in downtown Boston. Hayden himself was a fugitive from Kentucky, his rescuer, Calvin Fairbank, having been arrested and jailed for helping him escape. Hayden had turned down an earlier opportunity to escape because he could not bring his future wife along with him. As if to prove himself worthy of Fairbank's sacrifice, Hayden welcomed fugitives to stop under his roof. When the owner of William and Ellen Craft, Dr. Robert Collins of Macon, Georgia, sent two deputies to reclaim them, William took lodging in the Hayden dwelling, temporarily barricaded for the occasion. One day, when Harriet Beecher Stowe visited the Haydens, she was surrounded by thirteen escaped slaves. Upon settling in Newport, Rhode Island in 1855, George T. Downing quickly established himself as the friend of any fugitive alighting in that city. Individual assistance to runaway slaves was supplemented by the work of vigilance committees, and here, too, the black people in the North played a distinctive role. A vigilance committee aided the fugitives in a variety of ways, boarding and lodging them for a few days, purchasing clothing and medicine for them, providing them with small sums of money, informing them as to their legal rights, and giving them legal protection from kidnappers. A primary function of the Vigilance Committee was to help a slave establish himself in a new location, to furnish him with letters of introduction, to help him find a job, and to give him guidance and protection while he was thus engaged in getting started. Hence, a Vigilance Committee was a combination underground and upperground railroad, the latter comprising its efforts to help the slave locate within the United States. The time has come to stop running, announced Germaine W. Loguen, manager of the Fugitive Aid Society of Syracuse. Many of the vigilance committees had a totally or predominantly Negro membership. The greatest of these Negro-run organizations was the New York Committee of Vigilance, founded in November 1835 with David Ruggles as its secretary and general agent. At its monthly meetings, the committee listened to speakers like James Emerson, a seaman who had almost been sold into slavery after accepting work on a ship running to Petersburg, Virginia. 
Appearing at committee meetings were speakers like the wife of kidnapped Peter John Lee, her fatherless sons at her side. The committee listened to stories of colored children who had been hired as domestics and then carried into the South and sold. The committee publicized descriptions of missing Negroes and informed its members as to the arrival and departure dates of ships suspected of harboring slaves. At one of its meetings, three destitute Africans were introduced with a plea for funds to help them return to their native land. On one occasion, Isaac Wright told his story of being rescued by an agent of the committee after having been sold into slavery at New Orleans by the captain of the Newcastle, J.D. Wilson. It was through the committee that Wilson was arrested and detained for the illegal sale of Wright and two other Negro seamen. To attend a meeting of the Vigilance Committee tended to tear at the heartstrings. At the annual meeting in 1837 at the Zion Church, Alvin Stewart, founder in 1835 of the New York Anti-Slavery Society, was deeply moved by the strong emotions of gratitude expressed by the fugitives whom the committee had assisted. I could almost submit to become a slave for the privilege of making such a friendship, he said to the gathering. Much of the success of the New York Committee of Vigilance could be credited to David Ruggles. He is a General Marion sort of man, wrote a contemporary editor, for sleepless activity, sagacity, and talent. Ruggles personally gave assistance to hundreds of runaways. The case of Frederick Douglass was a typical one. Ruggles sheltered the young Douglass for nearly two weeks, made his marriage arrangements, and sent the newlywed to New Bedford, Massachusetts with a $5 bill and a letter of introduction to a locally prominent Negro, Nathan Johnson. Ruggles boarded incoming ships to see whether slaves were being smuggled in. He went from door to door in fashionable neighborhoods making inquiry as to the status of black domestics, New York law freeing any imported slave after a residence of nine months. In one instance, Ruggles went to the Brooklyn home of Daniel K. Dodge and brought away a domestic, Charity Walker, a former slave. Although Ruggles got her a job, the obliging Charity succumbed to a ne'er-do-well and soon became pregnant, opening Ruggles to a volley of criticism, however unjustified, from those hostile to the abolitionists. Ruggles resigned as secretary and agent in February 1839 because of trouble with his eyes and a clash with the committee. Ruggles kept no books and hence was never able to render an accurate account of monies received and expended. The committee could never tell whether Ruggles overdrew his salary of $400 a year and Ruggles, secure in his own sense of honesty, resented any probing of it. With the resignation of Ruggles, the New York Committee of Vigilance lost its driving spirit and much of its influence. But its record over a five-year span had been commendable. During its first year, it had protected 335 Negroes from slavery, and this figure was a sound approximation for each of the succeeding four years. The committee also won public acceptance of its contention that persons claimed as fugitives should have a trial by jury a measure they had advocated from their opening meeting. In May 1841, Governor William H. Seward signed such a bill, and a month later the Vigilance Committee held a victory celebration at Asbury Church. The presiding officer, Charles B. Ray, hailed the measure for sweeping clean from the statute books the last vestiges of slavery in the state. 
This book is continued on cassette 5, side 1.